Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Today, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Sherum. He is a transplant nephrologist in private practice in Houston. And we're going to be discussing a topic today that just blew my mind. I saw some statistics that came through from UNOS that talked about, you know, we all hear about the waiting list and how many people are waiting for a kidney. But there's a surprisingly large number of people who are inactive. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Sherum. Uh, how's Houston? Houston is uh, great weather today, but <laughs> we've been having, you know, in Houston, we have a saying, if you don't like the weather, just wait a couple of hours, it'll change. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well. It's not like L.A., that's for sure. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love the weather. I see some of my patient peers, my kidney kin, I call them, and they're in Buffalo, New York, and I'm like, I don't think I could do it. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, we all learn to adapt, right? Wherever we're at, we learn how to adapt. So Right. I, I used to live in Phoenix, and then I moved here, and people asked me, why did you change? I said, well, I changed the dry heat for the wet one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Your, your skin's going to be much healthier as you get older. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know... Um, Let's talk about a little bit about the UNOS uh, waiting list the, for kidneys. And uh, I can't believe this data that so many people are um, inactive. And uh, there was a statistic listed that, you know, it's like almost 40%. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's somewhat surprising. So in your, in your practice, you know, what are some of the reasons that patients – you know, basically become inactive. Yeah, there is a there is a lot of reasons why, and uh, let me let me just first say I must be uh, the one nephrologist in Houston that has the least amount of dialysis patients. Uh, I it, it's 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 not uh, it, it's just the way it has happened, but it's also by design. My the thrust of my practice is very heavily. Uh, leaning towards prevention. And I can tell you that I have fewer uh, dialysis patients because I'm really on top of them and not wanting them to go into that very painful process. So if I were to talk about my own experience, I would tell you, well, you know, my, the patients that I have on the waiting list are, are few because, you know, I just don't let them get to that point. But we all have patients that will get to that point inevitably. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't be a transplant nephrologist and not have people just waiting. Now, why do people get on the list and then they become inactive? Well, they become inactive for a variety of reasons. Number one is that they themselves probably fall into some uh, more of a disease process going on. For example, a uh, patient might have been approved for a transplant and is doing fine, is doing great, but all of a sudden, unfortunately, that patient may have a, uh, a heart attack 
And uh, so even though we thought that that was clear and not a problem, now we got an issue that has to be resolved. Uh, many times they, they may have to go uh, and get uh, bypass surgery or whatever other problems may have uh, come about. So transiently, the patients uh, are taken off the active list. And that can be just for an infection and a short hospitalization, right? Right. There are, there are infections, you know, when there is an infection, for example, unfortunately, our diabetic patients and they get a foot ulcer and that foot ulcer becomes osteomyelitis. And so there is a prolonged period of treatment with antibiotics that just takes them off the list. Right. So for one reason or another, the patients usually come off the active list because of the intercurrent medical problems that build up. As you know, when, when the patient comes to transplant, they should be on their ideal state of health for the stage right. that they're in. I mean, they, they're not healthy because that's why they need that a transplant, it. but everything else needs to click in a way that everything is going perfectly well. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because when, um, you know, I've had four transplants, as you know, and I've been on the list, you know, after my second kidney. Um, this was back in 1983, guys. So people are like, how did you get so many kidneys? I'm like, nobody wanted them back in the 70s and 80s. OK, there wasn't the long list. But today it's such a great uh, treatment option. And um, and I'm proof of that. But I, I think what's interesting is that. Um, I was on the list, getting ready to get listed again, and all of a sudden, I got an acoustic neuroma. I didn't even know what it was, but I had to go to an ear, nose, throat specialist, and and all of that just delayed my whole process because getting the doctor's appointments can take two months sometimes. So do you see that a lot of times just as a patient getting the appropriate doctor because of the fact that, you know, they need to see somebody to be cleared? And um, and then that just delays Absolutely. the whole that's process. Always, that's always an issue. And, uh, you know, it depends the nature of the problem. I mean, uh, there could be there could be problems for which uh, uh, doctors are totally loaded with that particular uh, kind of problem because there's not that many doctors doing what that problem requires them to do. So there is this waiting list uh, going on. Uh, but but the number of problems that come up is, is so varied. It could be a, an issue that has absolutely nothing to do with the actual health of the patient. Many times we got social issues. You know, there is, uh, I don't know, the uh, patient could be getting divorced and all of a sudden the patient is depressed and now he doesn't care whether he gets a transplant or not. Right. And, um, or there could be, uh, suddenly insurance problems, right, you know, unfortunately that plays heavily on whether the patient <laughs> I, is going to go I through or not. Dr. Sharp, I don't know if you agree with me, but I hear this term nowadays called health equity. <laughs> and I'm like, it's financial issues. That's really what it is. It's people don't have the resources, you know, whatever. I'm like, that's just a code word for health equity. <laughs> um, yeah, is, well, is you're broke. Uh, that, that's, that's a good term, but <laughs> unfortunately, you know, I, I, always, I always think, my God, you know, we, we're getting stuck because of a money issue, but in the end, uh, you know, the people that have to handle all the uh, paperwork and all the uh, 
management and administrative side of transplants, they need to they need to put all of this together. Somebody has to pay for things. Right. So as a doctor, you know, we have a tendency not to look at those issues, but there are real issues. And this is what delays uh, things from going forward. Well, and, you know, the statistics, it, it says, according to the end of 21, that there was 97,916 people who were on the list. And the number is not here because it changes. But, you know, it was about 40,000 people were inactive. And um, and I just found that so amazing. And I know one of the reasons one of my friends dealing with it is that um, some centers are really wonderful, but some are really, really difficult in getting getting some of the things like, you know, a transplant coordinator is overwhelmed and they have help and the shortage of staff. And if you don't have enough staff or enough people to be able to handle the patient load, uh, things can fall through the cracks. And that's what's happening with her, sadly. They they just forgot to tell her she needed an appointment. They forgot this. And um, we're actually asking for CMS to come up with some national portal that patients will know exactly where they are and are notified if they, you know, are inactive so that they're aware of it. Because I find some patients don't even know that they've they've been, oh, I didn't know I was off the list. <laughs> and, and you know, they ha- you have to be your own advocate. And uh, it's it can be tough when you don't feel 100%. Yes, that's that's a very important thing. When I'm evaluating patients uh, as a potential transplant, I tell them, uh, and I, I graphically, I try to do these things as graphically as possible, and I just take a sheet of paper, and I put it in one side of my desk, and I say, look, this paper's got to go from this point to this point. Mm-hmm. Now, let's watch it move. <laughs> uh, you know, the patients kind of look at you like, uh, what are you talking about? He says, well, it's not moving, right? Now... I'm not going to move it for you. I got too many things to do. You got to be your own advocate, making sure that the paper got from office A to office B. Now, have they cleared that? Where is my next step? Who do I need to talk to? You need to know your coordinator by name. You need to have the phone program in your phone. You need need to be the one pushing the paper through the number of boxes that it has to go through. Unfortunately, uh, you know, it shouldn't have to be like that, right. but the patient is the one that is going to be affected if the paper doesn't move. And that's a great analogy because so often it's just a, a bureaucratic blockage. And it's, it's you know, if you're not pushing that ball forward, then that's one thing I've learned my whole life is I'm like a dog on a bone when I want what I want. And, and, you know, my friend and I were actually having this conversation yesterday. There's a fine line from being proactive and to being considered a nuisance. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can yeah. hear sometimes that people are annoyed because you're calling over and over again. And, you know, I hope yeah. the healthcare professionals listening is like, you know, the pain in the butts live, okay? I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you should recognize our tenacity because we're fighting for our life. And and you should respect that. <laughs> There's my little PSA, okay? Um, because it is. I've been accused of, um, I was in a hospital once, and one of the doctors, you know, I told him what kind of pain meds I wanted <laughs> because I know what works, right? And he's like, 
how do you know that? Do you have, you know, Ativan at home? And I'm like, like Ivy Ativan, you know, or something like, I'm like, no, it's just 50 years of experience of knowing what works for me. Don't penalize me because I know about what works. And, and we use this term patient engagement all the time. And, and I'm like, well, that's what patient engagement looks like. Like it's cold in the room. Can you turn up the heat? <laughs> that's engagement. It may not look what you want it to look like, but that's how we are engaging. Um, yeah. I, I of also, course, Laurie, you know that there is a way to, to get things done. Yes. Uh, you know, I can come in and blasting and yelling and saying, this is what's got to be done. And I could be absolutely right and demanding that. But, you know, I could take a different approach and, and get to it immediately. So there is, there is this uh, fine social skill that you have to apply exactly. knowing how to get from point A to point B. You well, know, well, that's, that's just <laughs> the loss of social disposition. It's, well, and it's true. I mean, I joined Toastmasters back in 93. If anybody knows what that is, it's a group that teaches you how to speak and communicate. And, you know, there's certain levels. You call on the phone. You might leave a voicemail. And the best thing ever, if you want a response, is the online portal. <laughs> Send an email on the online portal. It used to be a fax with all yeah. your questions and what you needed and, you know, um, I don't know if this is true, but, you know, you have documentation that you continually ask something. It makes people just, you know, have it right in front of them and be able to to respond to it as opposed to if you call them and they, you know, they may not find their note. Or in my case, sometimes I can't read my own writing and I'm like, oh, my God, that's crazy. I can't read the phone number I just wrote down. And uh, uh, that's a, a little frightening. Um, before we move on to some of the ways of how, if you're transplanted, to not have to get back on the list, uh, I just want to take a moment and talk about uh, preemptive and living donation. And for those of you listening, preemptive donation for a kidney um, is basically you get a kidney before you're on dialysis. And so can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your thoughts on that and any experiences you've had with your patients? Yeah, well, preemptive is, the, of course, the ideal way to go because nobody is looking forward to an experience uh, in a long process of waiting while on dialysis. But, you know, that, that takes also uh, preparation. You can't have, you know, you can't show up at the doctor's office or a transplant nephrologist, when you got what we call chronic kidney disease stage five, you're at the verge of initiating dialysis in a week or two and say, can I get a kidney? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not going to happen. So what it is, is just a process of having recognized the road in which the patient is in, knowing that they're going to continue to progress and knowing before they get to a situation where they are at the end of the road, you should be able to say, I don't want to go there. So let me see. I got, I'm, on, I'm, I'm on this road, and I see that there is uh, two exits. Why don't I just prepare which exit am I going to take? And so one of them is the exit that takes you to fill up the tank of gas, for example. You know, we're using right. the example of a road. So that's the first one. And the, and the second exit is to take that other road different than the road that you were traveling in. Mm -hmm. So in order to get to preemptive, 
you need to recognize that that's where you're heading. You've accepted it. You're not fighting it. You're going to cooperate with your doctors. You're going to try to get to the point where you are eventually destined to go, so to speak, and start the, the transplant workup uh, earlier rather than later. Um, try to get a living donor. And by the time the patient then gets to a certain level of function where it is now uh, perfectly decent and morally acceptable and the conditions are the way they're supposed to be, then the transplant can be programmed and it can be done. I've had, uh, because of that, patients that eventually something happens towards the end that one donor cannot be um, the right donor for a particular recipient. And that's where we get into mix uh, matches, you know, two or three different couples. (laughs) And, and, you know, these three transplants that go on at the same time, except that the wife of A doesn't give the kidney to the, to, to their spouse, it ends up on somebody else's, and then somebody else's spouse uh, gets the kidney to the other person, and so on. You, you probably everybody is now aware of all these. It's the trains all, all or the chains. Magic that happens <laughs> in the ORs, you know. But, but in order to get to the preemptive issues, uh, there's got to be a whole lot of planning before. It just doesn't right. happen overnight. You, you know, this happens mostly when the patient is already recognize 30 ml per minute uh, function. So that's when they're moving from chronic kidney disease stage three to stage four, that's when things ought to be speeding up towards getting to the preemptive options. Well, and you know, it's interesting you say that because it is about awareness. And I think, um, you know, in my years of working with my kidney kin, and, you know, I've been hosting a support group since 1993 for patients, and we have two of them online every every, uh, month. And, you know, I always hear this. I didn't know I could get listed before I went on dialysis. And it's like, Medicare, if you're Medicare eligible, will pay for a transplant once your GFR is 20 or under. You're eligible for the list. And I'm giving kind of general um, numbers, but a lot of people don't go on to like a GFR of 8 to 12. (laughs) So you've got a window there, (laughs) you know. And and if you do, you know, some of the diet issues of uh, following you know, uh, plant-based protein that some of the research is coming out, you have a real opportunity to be able to get it. But it's, you got to push that, that um, boulder up the hill as fast as you can. And, uh, (laughs) and it was interesting. You know, Laurie, our, our friends in the uh, liver, the, the hepatologist, uh, I'm going to borrow a great advertisement that they have. And they say, what's the number cause of liver disease in hepatitis C uh, infection? Do you know what, what's the number one uh, problem? Uh, let's, let's hear it. I don't want to answer wrong. <laughs> Ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, well, because there's treatment. You know, because yeah, hepatitis C became became the kind of disease that can now be treated. You know, people do not need to go into end-stage liver disease and a transplant because they have hepatitis C. So if that is still happening, it's because somebody 
was ignorant about the fact that something could have been done. Exactly. So you know, let's that's borrow great... that concept and say, you know, anytime, you know, I, I, I get a lot of consultations on patients who are on chronic kidney disease stage four, borderline five. Right. You can't possibly talk about preemptive at that, at, at that level because it's just like we just said. You can't show up with a, with a function of 12 and say, I don't ever want to be on dialysis. What can you do for me for a transplant? Well, right. <laughs> if you bring an identical twin with you, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yes. And, e- and even then, <laughs> even then uh, you know, if a patient is really at that level where they're only 14 or below, they're going to have to be on dialysis temporarily, maybe a month or so. But it's still... It may still cut it very close in right. order to get the transplant without dialysis. And, and not, yeah, because you start to get fluid on you. You start to get a lot of fluid, and you don't want all that stuff when you get transplanted. Yeah, all, the, all the bad things that come mm-hmm. along with that. Well, and um, uh, what was interesting, in 2020, we had 5,730 living kidney donors in this country. And um, and then last year, 2021, we had 6,006. So it's nice to see those numbers going up. But, um, and, you know, for deceased donors, it was 12,588 deceased donors in 2020. And then it it went up slightly to 12,740 in 2021. So, you know, guys, we're looking at, you know, 18, 19,000 kidneys a year, and there's 100,000 people on the list. So uh, 96 to 100,000 on the list. So we definitely have a shortage. Um, I want to move now into, because a, a lot of people, and you've, I'm sure you have a lot of patients, is that we're called retreats. <laughs> we end up, you know, needing another kidney. And um, or if you have an existing transplant, you know, what can you do? Let's go through the steps of what you can do to um, ensure that you keep that kidney <laughs> and you don't have to get back on the list. Well, um, that that falls uh, in, in the area of uh, adequate compliance and follow up. But I have to say, even when all the patients are compliant, uh, things go wrong, you know. And the most important thing, uh, I tell my patients, for example, you know, you probably would be a fan of uh, car racing. Um, In car racing, it's very important to know uh, what the pole position is. And in transplant, it's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. The fate of what happens after transplant in the first month kind of dictates what's going to happen in the first three months. And then what, how, how the patient does in the next, for the first three months, kind of determines the kind of outlook you're going to have for the first six months or so. And once you get to six months of that kind of whatever is happening, almost determines what is going to happen for the entire year. And the outcome of how things happen in the first year kind of dictates what your future is going to look like. So the question is, if you were in a car race and you're going to drive the car, would you rather be on pole position number 30 or pole position number one? (laughs) <laughs> so, 
So when you look at it from that point of view, because obviously when the when the race starts, the first car already crossed the finish line while the car number 60 is waiting until he gets to that point to, to mm-hmm. essentially start his race. So uh, pole positioning here is important, and it's important that we follow the patients very closely because there are complications that can happen in the immediate time after the transplant. I would say that the most critical time is the first year. Yeah. It's broken down by, you know, the first week, the first month, the first three months, the first six months, and then eventually the whole year. Yeah. Well, you know, what I find interesting is that I still encounter people who think a kidney transplant is a cure. And I'm like, what? No way. You're just having another form of treatment. And, you know, and I'm preaching to the choir here. I know that to you. But it just amazes me how many people think... Again, you gotta you gotta push your own ball up. You gotta set your labs up. You gotta monitor those labs and 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 make sure that your you know your tacrolimus and your cell set level, all these things are are normal because that affects your pole pole position. And um, you know what's really exciting to me because I've seen the evolution of kidney transplant, having my first one in '79. And I had to take like 80 milligrams of steroids every year, <laughs> every day. And I would have eaten a shoe if it was in front of me. And we've progressed and we've learned over the years. And, you know, it's all about the antibodies. Everybody, we're listening. We're hearing more about antibodies because of COVID. But I find that fascinating because, you know, I used to live and die by my creatinine, you know. And then all of a sudden, people would realize that, this term that I heard all the time, chronic rejection, chronic rejection. And, and for those of you who don't know what the difference is between acute rejection and chronic rejection, acute rejection happens like quickly and it, it usually can, you docs can fix it for us. So being, I'm being a little bit generic, but chronic rejection has been the number one reason patients lose their kidney. And can you tell us what chronic rejection is? Okay, well, there's two main categories of rejection that we face after the immediate transplant. There's some, just so that for the doctors that are listening to this and are ready to criticize, no, there's more than that. There's hyperacute <laughs> rejection. Okay. Yes, yes. So but we're going to concentrate on, on, on acute cellular rejection and antibody-mediated rejection. There's two, two entirely different kind of uh, ways that uh, the kidney is being rejected. So, like you said, acute cellular rejection oftentimes happens. Uh, you know, the the drug levels are low, or the patient uh, forgot to take their medications for a sequence. It happened to one of my patients when Mardi Gras partied along, young kid. Uh, you know, didn't take his medication for about a week and. You know, unfortunately, that was the the tilting uh, point, and mm-hmm. you know he rejected his kidney. He's got acute acute cellular rejection. Got to be treated for that. But the treatment for antibody mediated rejection is you know this uh, preformed and 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 antibodies that are present that will start working on the kidney kind of on a slow uh, progressive. 
manner in, in which the kidney is going to get disposal. Can I give an analogy since you did car racing and I don't know what came to mind, but I'm sure. looking at a baseboard um, and I'm, I'm thinking it's like termites. You don't see them and they're like destroying your house until exactly. you get a, you see a nice little trail on the side of your wall and like, uh oh, <laughs> um, yes. it's been going on for a while, and now it needs serious intervention. <laughs> right, right. That's a great <laughs> analogy, uh, and that's uh, you know our immune uh, system is designed to dispose of everything that doesn't belong to you. You know, so right. you know the beauty is, yeah, we get rid of bacteria and viruses and fungus and all of these other things. But also, this kidney is not yours. <laughs> it's not right. exactly yours. And uh, so, so the immune system is always going to try to get rid of what doesn't belong to you. And so we have to be, we have to be careful about that. And we have to, that, that's, that's sort of, it's our own enemy. You know, right. we've, we've created this fantastic, what I call our liquid brain, which is our immune system. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the system that is going to try to, to keep uh, the system the way it should be. That, that is not supposed to be there, and let's get rid of it. You know, I, I think that's such a great analogy because, uh, you know, it's so important to take those meds every day and, and get the right dose. Because I actually had a friend who lost his transplant because he ended up losing a lot of weight and he didn't have his labs checked during that time. And he became nephrotoxic. And, you know, it's so important to keep up on, 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 on the labs. And I, one thing that's really interesting that I've come to uh, really appreciate is that there's, now there's like genetic testing um, to decide if, to, to know if you have any of these antibodies that could potentially kick the kidney to the curb. I, I, I like to say it that way, kick it to the curb. And one of the things I wanted to say to patients about the immune suppressant drugs, um, many of us have been vaccinated. Three, you know, I've had three vaccines. And um, I got my antibody level tested and I hadn't made any antibodies to COVID. And people are like, oh, that's that's really that's really sad. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm like, actually, no, it's not. <laughs> it tells me my body's actually not recognizing foreign foreign. I mean, maybe I just look at the half glass full. But I'm like, that means my transplant meds are doing their job. And and they're, you know, they don't recognize foreign things. That's why I'm not having a response <laughs> to the vaccine. And uh, because we don't want our body to have a response. And and let's talk a little bit about some available testing that's, that's helping us go upstream and figure out if you could avoid chronic rejection. Yeah, well, this is this is the new chapter in 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 transplant, and uh, and it's called transplant genomics, and so so now we know that uh, yeah, I'm going to give you a crazy example, okay? I love crazy uh, let, examples. Let's suppose let's suppose that you are in the house, and you know they're going to come in and evict you. So, <laughs> what? Let's let's talk about first biomarkers. That means you want to know if they're going to come in and pick you up and throw you out. 
So you could have somebody posted outside of your door, but by the time that person sees the guy coming in to evict you, it's too late. They're already there. Right. So you smarten up and you say, mm, I know who's coming, but I can't be watching. So let me put guys that work for me. I'm going to put them outside their house. And so the minute they're out of their house, they're going to call me. But they may be going somewhere else. So I'm going to post another one that leads to the road that leads to my house. And if that guy shows up in there, yeah, I want to know because I still have time. You know, so all of these are the so-called biomarkers. So now, you know, it's kind of acting the same way. We mm -hmm. want to know not when the creatinine goes up. By the time the creatinine goes up, is they're holding you and they're trying to throw you out of your house. You're getting evicted at that point. If we wait until the creatinine goes up, we already know we're kind of too late. Now you just have to work your way out. Oh, please give me a chance. I'm going to do this. You know, it's a stupid example perhaps, but I want people to understand. So with transplant genomics, we know when the guy left his house, so to speak, and is coming in towards your house to try to evict. And so, uh, you know, we can now measure this, this, what we call these markers, this genomic testing can help us determine if a transplant is going to start getting rejected before any actual changes occur in the traditional way that we have known that, that transplant can be diagnosed. In the past, we, the first thing we would ask the patient when we didn't have cyclosporin, for example, mm -hmm. and we relied on other medications that were not as efficient, by the time the patient knew or by the time we knew that there was a rejection, they already had pain in the kidney, uh, pain in the graft, let's call it. That's how we call the kidney transplant. So there's pain at the graft side. There is maybe fever. There could be blood in the urine. Then you check the creatinine and it's up. Well, by then, the, the, you know, the kidney is actively rejecting. What we want to know is whether the process, the orders, let's just say, of a rejection, go and evict that guy. That's when I want to know somebody getting on the phone and says, hey, they were dispatched. You better get ready. They're on the way. What are we going to do? And this is kind of what transplant genomics uh, tells us at this point. It's, it's very it's very exciting. I mean, because um, I was I had my fourth transplant in 2011. Uh, God, almost it's 11 years. Wow. Um, and it's my fourth one. It was tough. I had 100% antibodies and, you know, it was a little bit dicey. But, uh, you know, I got a lot of treatments and um, straight out the gate, I had an antibody, a B8 antibody. And they've been watching that antibody for 11 years. And it's moderate. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, it's moderate. And I love what my doctor said. He's like, it's it's not a, a super bad antibody, but it's friends of bad antibodies. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's just like what you said about the analogy. And um, I have different testing. And my creatinine is 0.6. And my genetic testing shows that there is no change. I'm below the number where they're at risk. Um they wanted to attempt to biopsy me. Um, and this is really interesting, but I've had four transplants and never been biopsied. Um, it's pretty amazing. And, and this particular kidney, 
was an inner abdominal transplant because I'm only four foot ten and I didn't have a lot of room to put a fourth kidney. And it's it's too deep to, to, to biopsy without injuring me. And so, you know, I'm so grateful for the genetic testing because guess what my creatinine is? Just just guess because you like to play games. Um, guess what my creatinine is today? Well, you said it was point something. So you're below one. I'm point six still. And I have no blood pressure problems. And so they look at the whole thing. And, you know, it just gives me a sense of security that. Um, right. But, but Lori, <laughs> let me just bring this up. You know, there is a lot of, unfortunately, uh, there is there may be a lot of uh, kidney transplant patients that are being routinely monitored by other people that are not transplant nephrologists. You know, right. you're, yes. or they could yes. be. Uh, you know, out in the field, you know, you know, they could be watched by a good internist, and I'm not saying anything wrong about them, but, but you know, most everybody looks at the uh, the creatinine uh, that is a range, you know, like from 0.6 to 1.2 is normal. Right. But you and I know that if the creatinine goes from 0.6 to 1.2, you already lost 50% of the function. Right. And, and you could still call it, but, I, but I'm normal. So there's no such thing as a range of normal in, in, in the creatinine. So this is a very just, dangerous issue. It's a very dangerous because, cause, yeah, it is. Because it's, if you go from 0.6 to 0.8, which a lot of people would look at you and say, oh, okay, well, that's definitely less than one. You're, you're definitely normal. But if you went from 0.6 to 0.8, why did that happen? Right. You know? Maybe those guys that are going to come in and evict that person, they're already out in the field. Exactly. But wouldn't you want to know? They're already tracking you. Um, yeah. They're already tracking you. Well, and, you know, with my third transplant, I, it was pretty difficult. Um, it didn't work for three weeks. But I left the hospital um, with a 2.2 creatinine. And this had been after 12 years of dialysis, you know. Anyways, I was a young, in my young 20, in my 20s. And people thought, oh, you'll get about three or four years maybe out of this kidney, right? That kidney lasted me 20 years. My creatinine never moved from 2.2 for those 20 years. And, you know, I, um, looking, and then the kidney never, it just started to putter out. That's why I need a fourth one. And I, I think that story is just exactly what you said. It was my creatinine was stable. It never moved. And um, which shows that maybe the kidney probably had a little bit of, you know, hit when it was it was out of the body in almost 36 hours. And it, I could give you the whole story of that. But um, whatever it happened, it my body didn't have any rejection against it uh, to maintain a creatinine of 2.2 for, you know, 20 years. And, and it lasted uh, sort of what we know is the expected uh half-life of, uh, of the kidney transplant. So right. he, he didn't get a bad service, so to speak, no. out of this kidney for no. 20 years, you know, well, at this level. That was great. And I just stayed alive till the next miracle happening when, you know, they have this new antibody treatment for people who had so many antibodies like I did. Um, let's just move on and kind of talk a little bit about, you know, how do the patients get tested? And and I do want to follow up with people listening. You know, you need to follow up with your transplant nephrologist, everybody. There's a difference between a nephrologist or an internal medicine doctor and a PCP, like a primary care physician. And, you know, your nephrologist will be well suited in, you know, manage you in some levels, but 
I see my nephrologist and I still see my transplant nephrologist twice a year. Yes. The, the reason for that is that the nephrologists that are not following transplants every day, they, they, you know, they very appropriately feel like, okay, you know, this has a, an, an increased level of sophistication. And if I'm not doing it every day, there is a lot there writing on a potentially bad decision. I don't want to be part of that. I don't, you know, obviously I don't want you to go back on dialysis or, or because something wasn't done, you end up having a problem. So, so you want to make sure that the people that are know exactly what the nuances are with any single change that happens or impacts the kidney transplant are the people that are willing to continue to follow these cases and to act appropriately. Maybe... Somebody watching a creatinine from 0.6 to 0.8 in the office goes, okay, you know, this is a little fluctuation. We're just going to watch it. Yeah, and then, yeah, and if the patient doesn't show up for the next appointment or whatever, and then the next creatinine was uh, 1.0, you say, okay, well, you know, now you're looking from 0.8 to 1.0. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a fluctuation. Yeah. But now when you compare the 1.0 to the original one of 0.6, you got a problem there. Right. You got a big problem. The train's already left the track and it's coming exactly. it's coming for you. Um So so I think that uh, that's the reason why some nephrologists do not want to follow patients with transplant because that's not what they're doing every day. They're they're doing other aspects of nephrology and and they're happy to help the big population of masses that need them. That's fine. But the kidney transplant needs a little one iota more of, of attention that I may or may not have, or even if I put the attention on that, I'm not handling these problems every day. I don't right. really know when to push the panic button here. Right. You know, of course, You're, if it goes up to 1.2 from 0.6, yeah, anybody knows that you push the panic button there. But, you know, it's the little nuances between one... Right visit to another and then that's why transplant nephrologists will still exist <laughs> so and well and it, it is because it's like you know a uh, regular nephrologist internal medicine doctors like they they uh, cook um you know italian food every day and you know and then all of a sudden they got to switch to chinese i'm making a i'm trying to come up with clever stories and you know you got to think couple you got to think oh wow i need to use a different set of rules and um and and so it's better to go to the per it's better to go to just to a Chinese restaurant <laughs> and yeah. then have well, an Italian restaurant cook a Chinese dinner. Um um uh, but uh, I I wanted to just say what um it, you know the biomarker test of course is a blood draw, but what does the patient ask for? Because you know if they're seeing their nephrologist, they haven't seen their transplant doctor. Uh, they need to get their You know, Laurie, the patient shouldn't need to ask anything. <laughs> if the patient is seeing a transplant nephrologist, I guarantee you the transplant nephrologist already knows about this genomics. This has been, literature is exploding. It's, it's all, all the genetic stuff is, is where we're heading just about in every, every single specialty is picking up on, on genetics. You know, I'm glad nephrology is... Is, is getting heavier on the genetic aspect. I mean, right. the, the one specialty that is more than 10 years ahead of us is oncology. They've right. been doing genomics for all these many years. You know, everything, they, they do a, a biopsy that used to be ready in two days, now takes uh, two weeks because they're testing all of this genomic stuff. 
you know, and every tumor is different. And so they're really ahead, ahead of everybody else. But I'm glad in nephrology, genomics is taking a real interest and, and, and we have the labs that can, that can do all this testing, which are very, very difficult tests to, to, to do. It's not just, you know, you do the test and it comes back on the same day. No, it doesn't happen this way. We're dealing with genes and, and a very delicate process, but, but it's now available and it's going to continue to expand. I can, I, I, I remember, I remember uh, not too long ago when my wife, um, we had to test her for two, two genes, the BRCA1 and the BRCA2, and I know, and the lab was telling us they're going to cut me a break from 11000 to $7,000 to run the test. Uh, now we can, we can get, uh, you know, to check 385 genes that we know affect the kidneys, uh, you know, for roughly three hundred and fifty dollars. So, so <laughs> it's, it's just amazing. It, yeah, it's amazing. And, and, and there is no reason not to start checking people just on a regular basis because just by doing that, I have been able to confirm whether whether the patient that got a diagnosis, say, of polycystic kidney disease, really has or doesn't have polycystic kidney disease. I mean, the genetic test is going to tell me, and so. These are very, very useful tools. And so these tools are also very useful in the case of transplant because, because we have this, uh, these two tests that I may say one company, you know, uh, Transplant Genomics, uh, TGI, has, has put them together in a single test. You know, it's called Omnigraph. And you get the, the gene expression side of the answer, and you get the donor-derived uh, cell-free DNA. And, you know, these, these two tests kind of tell us uh, a little bit. There is a, lot of, there is a lot of overlap, but kind of hints as whether it's an acute cellular rejection or an antibody-mediated rejection. Or it tells us, yes, you know, something's going on in here. You better go in and do a kidney biopsy. Or I could have a patient in whose creatinine is going up. Yeah, yeah, he went out, uh, played golf, and he came back, and the following day he got the blood test, and he didn't hydrate properly, and, and the test is a little higher. Now, by what I said, it went from 0.6 to 0.9. Should I be doing a biopsy on this person? Well, you know, if I get a, a transplant genomic testing and that is totally negative, maybe I could look at what else could be causing this problem without having to do a biopsy. Well, and, and there's so much hope because there's actually treatment you can give the patient the sooner yeah, well, you, you can you make know, those antibodies lay down, right? You can make them go back to where they came from and not know where you are. <laughs> Lori, one of my definitions of problems is if you already know what the problem is, you already got the solution. It's just a matter of looking it up. So the most important thing is you can't have a brilliant uh, a treatment plan if you don't even know what you're treating. So the key, still the key for me is uh, good clinical principles of practice. You got to have the best possible diagnosis you can get because once you have the diagnosis, now you can, you you can, can ask, you can go to other people, you can figure out what it is you need to do because you already know where the target is. You know where to shoot. It's not like 
Right. You know, it's not like you're shooting in the dark and see if it hits a moving target. That, that's, that's no way of doing it. So knowing what the problem is, is what defines, for me, a good doctor, I always tell my patients, is the one that can stay ahead of the problem. Right. Not behind. Anybody can pick up a number and line up behind. All the world can pick up a number and line up behind that problem. But once you identify the problem, how do you stay ahead of the, of, of the consequences right. of that problem? It's so and, true. And I also want to tell you, Lori, that, you know, to defend the issue of, of the subspecialty and transplant nephrology is the, the motto in my office, in my practice is, I don't do windows. I only do kidneys. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's, it's so, so, it's so, so that, true. You're, that's it's your what specialty. You do. Maybe, maybe the patients get annoyed when they say, you know, I have this ear problem. Can you check it? Yeah, I can check it, but you're going to have to go see somebody else. Right. I know what to do, but I've elected not to do that because I'm only devoted to what I think I should know everything about my specialty, and that's the only thing I'm going to do. Well, you know what, uh, Dr. Sharam, you are a champion of kidney care, and, you know, we really appreciate it. Um, for all of you listening out there, you know, you got to do your part. You got to get your labs. You got to be your own advocate. You know, ask your doctor, are you doing biomarker checking on me for my transplant? Uh, find out if they're um, being ahead of the game. And um, if, if they balk at you or if they say, oh, you don't need that or you don't know this, you know. Hey, you can always get a second opinion, even if you had a transplant with somebody. Is that right? <laughs> That's absolutely correct. <laughs> you know, we always say the patient's got the right to visit any doctor they want. Yeah, whether is the it? insurance is going to pay for it is a different story. But do they have the right? They have the right. Yes. And, you know, when it comes down, I'll say this, and I say it to all the patients, when it comes down to your health, you're the one, you're the beneficiary or you're the one in trouble if you don't act. Don't expect that the doctor or anybody else is going to act for you. I'm not going to go clean up your house if you yourself are not interested in cleaning it. Why should I bother going on to clean it? I can't impose myself on cleaning your house if you don't care to clean your house. So it has to come from the patient. The patient, and I hear again, borrowing from the hepatologist side, ignorance is one of the greatest problems. You got to educate yourself as to what's going on. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. I know a lot of patients tell me because I see a lot of second opinions. But doctor, you know, by the time I'm going to uh, ask a question, the doctor already stand up and he's holding the knob on the door and he's on the way out. And I say, you have to say, doctor, excuse me for a second, please. I still have two or three questions to ask. You know, if you just say that, I'm sure the doctor is going to turn around and say, okay, what are your questions? You, you need to have your facts in front of you. You need to know exactly what you're going to ask. You need to be educated about your own problems because that's when you leave this phase of ignorance and you start asking the right questions, the doctors are always happy to get an interesting question. That means the patient is motivated, engaged, and if you solve this issue, the patient is going to run with this 
for their own benefit. Exactly. So don't and I always be afraid say, to ask. You got to pick your, your doctor like you pick your spouse. You got to be able to communicate with them. <laughs> and you got to, uh, you know, um, it, it's so true. It's actually might be a more important relationship because they're the one that's going to keep you ticking. So, um, well, thank you, Dr. Shrum. Yeah, this has been a wonderful uh, educational interview. And I look forward to meeting you someday. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to be in L.A. in about two weeks. Maybe I'll look you up. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.